0: Big Zoo is an unlikely multi-hyphenate. It's not many grime MC rappers who can also claim to be a double BAFTA-winning TV cook. In fact, it's only one, and he's my guest today. Born Zuhair Hassan to a mother from Sierra Leone and a dad from Lebanon, he grew up on the Mozart estate in West London. He started cooking, he says, because he grew tired of his mother making him boil pasta for 15 minutes (laughs) rather than the requisite three. Soon, he was making meals for all his friends. As a teen, he joined the MTP Collective along with his cousin, AJ Tracy, and released his first EP, Big Who, in 2015. In between recording demos at his local youth centre and studying for a social work degree, Zoo started posting videos of his kitchen skills to social media. Soon, they gained traction and his fresh, Utterly authentic and hilarious style caught the eye of Dave's commissioners. He now presents Big Zoo's Big Eats on the channel, along with best friends Tubsy and Hyder. The trio also have a weekly radio show on Kiss Fresh. On Big Eats, his former guests have included Jimmy Carr, Catherine Ryan and Mel B. Alongside his burgeoning TV success, he released his fourth album, Navigate, in 2021. I never imagined being where I am now, he says. My school just told me I talk too much. (laughs) (laughs) Big Z, welcome to How to
1: Fail. That was it incredible intro thank you so much
0: oh it's a pleasure did i get it right I'm you, all... you,
1: you got it very right it was all on yes, point it's all yes. sounding it's sounding journalistic <laughs>
0: thank you sounded <laughs> professional sounded uh, on point is that true that your school told you that you were too talkative did yeah. you get into trouble all the time all the
1: time they told me to stop saying this on stuff but i said i say it all the time in my yearbook they said what be remembered for and i put disrupting the learning of others <laughs> and i don't know why they let me put that because yeah. they had to approve your quote yeah and i said disrupting the learning of others because that's what my teachers would say to me all the time
0: <laughs> did you get bored at school what was it that made you want to disrupt i mean it? Old, i'm older
1: now so i know i have adhd when i was younger i wasn't diagnosed so i just have intense adhd that's all it is really i can't blame it on that mm-hmm. but that's what i have <laughs> yeah. so when i was in school and the problem was that i'll talk a lot but then i'll get my work right like right and get it done and I was in tops at everything. So as much as they wanted to keep me out and get me in I put me in like detention and get me like they couldn't put me in a in as much trouble because I was smart. Mm-hmm. So it was like a paradox that my teachers to go through continuously. And because I was in higher sets with people that were like the more intelligent people in my year, they're less likely to be the talkative people that are like incredibly annoying. So I would be in a room.
0: Yeah.
1: With not all my friends from my year, not all the people that I'm used to being with. And I'd get bored. Because it's boring.
0: When did <laughs> you get diagnosed with ADHD?
1: Literally this year. Really? Yeah.
0: It's so interesting how many people have come on this podcast who were incredibly successful, creative at the top of their game, super smart, mm. yeah. and who have been diagnosed with ADHD as adults. Yeah. And it's transformed their understanding of why
1: they are the way they are. Was mm, like, that your experience? Weird. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. It's like, you don't want to like blame everything on the fact they have ADHD, but like, what, the more you understand ADHD, the more you understand like your patterns and your behavior. Mm. So like, I'm older now. So obviously I'm going to have more control of like how I express myself or how my mind kind of is. But in terms of the dopamine in my brain for focusing, it's not there, in it? <laughs> so all the times that I'm not focused, all the times that I like, hyper with adrenaline, that's what you normally rely on if you have ADHD. Well, obviously it affects people differently, but that's how it affects me. Like, I have intense adrenaline to help me focus. Like, when I'm filming or when I'm doing music, that's why music was so fun for me, performing live. Because I would zone in mm. on what I was doing because my adrenaline would just be so high. And it'd be like, that's the only time that like, I can really shut out everything and just fuck. Like I can have a million people in front of me, I don't care because I'm focused on my performance on making sure that I'm hitting the right notes or saying the right lyrics or my breathing or how I'm engaging with the crowd. When I learned about like ADHD, it made me look at like all the time I did like music and I was like, that's why whenever I would spit bars or be in a room on radio or if I'm performing, I'll be super in it. Like when I perform live, I'm a different person. Like, I'm very chilled. Like, people probably don't think I'm but we think I'm super loud all the time. But this is how I speak. I'm very, like, relaxed. Yeah. When I perform, I'm in the sky. I'm jumping all over the place. I'm not moving like a fat man. I'm moving like I'm the lightest man in the world.
0: (laughs) You're not a fat man. Do you think of yourself as a fat man? I'm definitely a
1: fat man. I'm a big guy. I'm a big guy. I've always been a big U from when I was young. That's why I'm called Big Z.
0: So who gave you that name?
1: I I just came up with it. I was (laughs) like... I was thinking of a rap name. I was like, where can I go? Everyone calls me Zoo because no one can pronounce my name.
0: Did I pronounce
1: it? Yeah, you said it right, you said it right. I used to always be like, just call me Zoo." Just call me Zoo. Yeah. Just please just call me Zoo. And then when I was thinking of a rap name, I'm named after my dad. So I was like, I'll call myself Big Junior, because it's an oxymoron. And I love like, lyricalness. I thought I was so lyrical. So I put a song and called it Big Junior. And someone like, to me, that's the deadest name in the world. And I was like, that's true. So I was like, bro, you're called Zoo. Like, why don't you just call yourself Zoo? So I was just going to call myself Zoo. Then I was like, no, you know what? Let me call myself Big Zoo. I Googled Big Zoo and nothing came up. Yes. Like zero search results. <laughs> and I was like, surely if I'm the only Big Zoo, then every time you search B-I-G-Z-U-U, it's just me. Whereas I had friends who had names that were like, different kind of things that like if you search them, they wouldn't like AJ Tracy, you mentioned I was about him. to say, yeah. He was called Looney Okay. before, cause he's a crazy guy. He was called Looney, but then he made his name AJ Tracy, which is like, he liked AJ at the time, Armani jeans. And then he just thought a random unisex name, like Tracy was cool. So he just called himself AJ Tracy cause no one was called that. So it kind of influenced me. And I was like, well, I'll call myself big zoo. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. And like, that's it. Big Zoo was born. Can I check where this cab is from? Remember? Yeah.
0: So Big Zoo has to check with his mom because he's getting a suitcase delivered for
1: her. Yes. Hello, mum. Wait. Let me come off the phone. Right, go down now. He's going to be there now. Yeah, he'll be there now. All right, bye. Nice and easy. My mum called me.
0: We love you, Big Zoo's mum.
1: I, I, I love she, her so I much. I mean,
0: she sounds like such a legend. But before we get on to her, because I've got yeah. loads of questions, what's it like winning two BAFTAs in one night?
1: Oh, God. That was, it was very unexpected. I felt very blessed. And I felt it was a big moment, not just for me, but for a lot of people. And it really proved that what we're doing in terms of television, in terms of the change, in terms of people trying to like have more representation, X, Y, Z, is going to have an impact eventually. Yeah. You know? And a lot of people feel like things are forced. There's probably people that think that I got the Baptist just because of the skin color I am or the the class that I come from. But I feel like, what really happened was uh, the second award is what what spun me. Because the first one was like, we was nominated for that the year before for our first season of Big Eats. So we was already like really content for the fact that we was nominated two years in a row for a show that is our first ever TV program we've ever made. My two co-stars have never been on television in their life. They've never done any form of presenting. We was already happy. So if we if we won that one, we would have felt great. The second one was best entertainment performance. I'm against... Alison Hammond against like Michael McIntyre, just all these incredible people like Graham Norton, like Sean Locke, RIP, like just, and Joe Lysett, like just people that are like known by the whole entire country, people who are like renowned in their jobs, people who've been doing it for many years, millions of followers online. To win it against them just really made me feel like, no, what I'm doing is right. Like I, Because I put a lot of work in this year on telly. In the past few years, I've done so much little appearances where I've come up here and I've like, whether it's a Sunday brunch or a soccer AM or Jonathan Ross or a Graham Norton. I've, every And every time man's gone on these things, I'm always performing. Do you know what I mean? It's never yeah. like I'm just coming out and I'm like, hi, I'm here to promote my book or my show, which is what I'm doing in a sense. But every time I come out, I'm performing. And I felt like when I won that award, it was like, if you know what I've been doing, you'd understand why I've won it. If you don't know what I was doing, you'd probably be super baffled and think, what the hell is going on?
0: That's so interesting, though, because you come across so real and so yourself. Thank you. But I also relate to that idea of having to switch it on. You have to sort of switch an energy on. Yeah, of course. It's not like you're assuming a persona. You're still you, Mm -hmm. but you switch up the energy. Is that right?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you're on live telly and you do telly, you only get one chance to come across well. Every time I work, I'm always working with incredible people who've been doing it for Like, I remember when I did Stand Up To Cancer, I helped did the after show, after the live broadcast. I came out to do a link to let them know that after the show finishes, I've got a show on where I'm talking to people backstage who want on the main show. And I was with Davina McCool, Maya Jamar, Alan Carr, and I think Josh Whittacombe. And like, I was just looking around, I'm like, this is crazy. Mm. Like, I'm here for a crazy cause. Live on television, all these incredible people, like, this is not what I ever thought I would ever be doing. Do you know what I mean? But when I do these things, people love it. People always be like, who's that random guy? Why does he talk like that? Why does he look like that? Why is he fitting in? Because every time I've done it, the conversation's never been, oh, I shouldn't be there. The conversation's always, wow, he's doing all right there. Like, even I went on Strictly the other day and I did the terms and conditions, and people were absolutely mental, like, oh my God, you to do Strictly. Because it's, people aren't used to seeing people like myself in these places. So I never knew how important it was when I did everything that I'd done. But now I get it and I feel like that's where the BAFTA comes from. And Mm. like, I knew that in my heart when I went up and got it, but the kind of like shock, the gas, the everything, it's like, that's why if you watch my first speech, I'm kind of angry. I'm not smiling. I'm like, I'm vexed. Like in my tone, if you know my tone, you can hear me. I'm like, I'm like, big up my mum, yeah? All right, cool. Let's get into this. Let me say why I should have won this. You know what I mean? I'm not like thankful or like, oh, my, thank you guys. I'm not, I'm angry. Why am I angry? Because it was like, I knew we deserved it, but I knew I had to tell people why we deserved it. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't even have to say why.
0: Your second acceptance speech. I'm actually about to quote back yeah, to you because I a thought it was one. so powerful. You were talking about your mum. Yeah, she came to this country four months pregnant from Sierra Leone during the rebel war. Yeah, Haider's family come from Kurdistan, which is not a recognised state. Uh-huh. Tubbsy's family are from Iraq and Iran. They were in a war when he was born. Man comes from humble beginnings.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I thought that was so powerful. Thank you. And really goes to the heart of everything that you've just said. Mm-hmm. Can I talk to you now about your mom? Yeah, of course. So, what's her name?
1: Aisha. Aisha. But her, her her stage name. <laughs> her, that's her. That's her. Like that's like a like an English name. Every African person has their English name. Yeah. Her, my mom's real name is Aisatu. Okay. So Aisatu. That's her.
0: So she came over here four months pregnant.
1: Yeah. Why? Tell me the story of well, that. It's, it's it's a long story, but basically when the Sierra Leonean rebel war started, because mom was pregnant with me, she was with my dad. And it was a lot of politics. And the best thing for my mom to do was to leave Sierra Leone. That was the best thing for her to do. And she got a visa to come to England. But my dad, because my dad's Lebanese, he was affected by the war in a different way. The rebels weren't really trying to kill Lebanese people. They were trying to like work with them. So my dad being a white man in Africa at the time, which is what he'll be perceived as, but my dad is an African man. He was born in Sierra Leone. His family was born in Sierra Leone, but when the war started, the Lebanese people were affected in a different way to the Sierra Leoneans. Mm-hmm. So my mom's family, it was very tight for them. It was very sad for them. A lot was going on. Whereas for my dad's family, it was more, they had to hide from what was going on X, Y, Z. So for my mom, the overall situation was the best thing for her was to leave, but my dad had to stay. So when my mom came, it was just her. She was pregnant with me and she just had to kind of like get on with it, you know? Back home, a lot of stuff going on. The war kind of ended around like the early 2000s. So up until the time I was probably like seven, eight, the war wasn't done. My mom was like going through her family being in war, not being with my dad. Her, my dad and my mom probably split up by the time I was like two, three. So then by the time I was two, three, my mom stopped getting support from my dad and was like a single mother in the country. She didn't really know the language of properly, mm. but she's a, she's a strong lady. You know, she made it work. How did she make it work? My mum was a chambermaid when she first started. So she was like cleaning hotels Like every single refugee foreign person that does when they come to this country. The easiest job to get is to be a cleaner because they can make things off the record. It's normally cash in hand. A lot of people, when they come over, that's the first job they do. They either get into cleaning or they, if you're a man, you get into like construction handiwork. So for my mum, she was cleaning stuff. She always had a gift of the gab. So she got, she started doing the other things. My mum had a lot of jobs, done a lot of different things. So... I think by the time my dad stopped supporting my mum, when I was like three, four, it was more just a relying on help from the government. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? In terms of housing, in terms of benefits, X, Y, Z. And it was that, that was what we, we lived off, you know? Got put into council housing. My mum had a private house when we was young. When I was like two, three, she had a house. She used to rent a room to a lady. And then when my dad stopped helping us, that's when like, I could just remember my life completely changed my mum. We lived in like a bed and breakfast for about two years, which was like, uh, it was like a lot of, a lot of different like refugees lived in this place. I talked about it a better times, a place called the hotel. It was in Swiss Cottage. So it was one of the like old mansions that on the road going up to Hampstead from Finchley Road, it was a converted mansion that had like little rooms, which were just filled with families. Some rooms had like five people in one room. Me and my mum just shared a room. But then couple people like i know they had like four or five people in one room and i was there for two years then we got temporary housing in fernhead road which is where i pop. Up, like that's why i say i grew up because by the time i was like five i was like five six i lived there till i was about 14.
0: and how would you define your youth and that experience that you had growing up how do you feel about it what were you um like?
1: It was tough. Like I knew it was tough. I knew what I was going through wasn't normal. I didn't have, like we had no family here. So it was just me and my mom. When I went to that hotel, that's when I made a lot of friendships. A lot of the people that I've met there were my friends for a long time. Obviously I rely a lot on like school friends and stuff. But then when you're growing up in a place like Howard Road and you're in an area like that, everyone's going through the same shit. So it's Mm. like, I never felt sorry for myself. There was times I'd be like a little depressed boy, like wanting all the toys or wanting all the new games, like every kid does or wanting all the new clothes. But like around me, no one else was more well off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, it was like, this is normal. We just got to get on with it and just have a lot of fun. That's why we laughed a lot. Me and hide Hyder, from when I first met them in, in secondary school, when, when we was 11, all we do is laugh. Because mm-hmm. I feel like that was our way to like get away from our reality. You know? So
0: your mum clearly has many skills. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that at that time, cooking wasn't one of them?
1: No, she could cook. <laughs> okay, So I could cook. She just couldn't cook Western food. Right. And growing up, going primary school, going secondary school, going to people's houses, you're eating all these like sugary, oily things. Mm-hmm. Like you want to eat oven chips with a bag of ketchup. You want turkey Twizzlers. You want pizza. You want Chinese for dinner. Yeah. You want like, cream cheese. Yeah, yeah. You want all the stuff, like even just like, when people used to get a kebab, obviously things have changed now like as delivery. People probably don't, you are not used to how it was back in the day, where you could only get two types of a takeaway, either Chinese or Indian, yeah, or you those. have to go to the high street and get a kebab. That yeah. was it. That was your only choices. And growing up, not having a lot of money, my mum wouldn't do that. My mum would always cook back home food, okra soup, stew, all these kind of things that I did like. But by the time I'm like five, six, I've had it my whole life. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to my friend's house having like all these lovely things. Like, what would you mean cake and custard after we have dinner? What? <laughs> That's crazy. So by the time I was at like eight, nine, I've started experimenting in the kitchen just to try like have different flavors. And then I remember reading a tortellini packet. My mom used to boil it like it was, it's fresh pasta. My mom used to boil it like it was dry pasta. Mm-hmm. So she, I told her, mom, you don't want packet it. it. says you should boil for two, three minutes. She's like, no, we're talking about... It's not going to be cooked. And this was around the time my mum was pregnant. So she was doing less cooking around the house. She was a bit more tired. So I just said, cool, I'm going to do it and see how it goes. Boiled the tortellini for two minutes, heated up the sauce in the microwave, put some cheese on top, gave it to her mum. She was like, this is not cooked. I said, "Mom, it's cooked. <laughs>
0: it's al dente, mum. It's al dente. <laughs> just try
1: it. She tried it and then she, I took the packet out of the bin and I showed it to her and she said, okay, You keep cooking that one. That's fine. (laughs) And then from there, just kept going.
0: So she must be so proud of you now.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's it's been weird because obviously I did music first and I dropped out of uni in my second year to pursue like being a musician. And when I dropped out of uni, my mum thought my life was going down the drain. But then, I mean, the more things kind of picked up, before I even got into telly, the more like music picked up and the more things started happening, the more she just believed in me. So but when I transitioned into doing stuff on television, she was like already my biggest fan. Mm. So then now it's like, she listens to all my music. She watches all my stuff on YouTube. She was coming to my headline shows. And then now it's like, wow, I'm watching my son on telly. I never thought, she used to see me on telly if I did something music related. But then it became like I had my own show out of nowhere. And like, I remember watching Big Eats. With her first, it was in lockdown. So when Big Eats first happened, it was in lockdown. And I had to watch it with my mom. And me and my mom just couldn't believe that. Like I'm on telly, this is crazy. I'm cooking for Jimmy Carr. Why am I cooking for Jimmy Carr? Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah.
0: Before we get onto your failures, I want to ask you about your most recent album and the title, Navigate. Yeah. And I wondered if part of that came from having to navigate so many different worlds. Yeah. Like music, TV, mm-hmm. like the broadcasting world versus yeah. like where you grew up. Like, is that, mm. do you feel like you have to assume lots of different guises? Like lots yeah,
1: 1 million percent. Yeah. That's what Navigate was about. It was about me just going through all of that Navigate is an album that I built over the last, like, three years. I never wanted to make an album. It just happened. I just had all this music that I've been building. And I was like, go on, let's put it out. When people make albums, sometimes they get into, like, this creative process for, like, a week, two weeks, or a month, where they create all this music in this one time. Whereas Navigate was built while I was transitioning from music to TV, while lockdown happened, all that stuff. So when I put it out, it was kind of like... It was weird, because I, I put it out at a time where... It was like my first proper album. I had other albums out that were like collations of music and stuff. But in terms of like Big Zoo album, that was my first album. But I never thought I'd ever pull it out how I did because I pull it out and then I didn't tour it. I didn't do as much as I would have done with it. Whereas if music was my only thing that I would have done, my album would have been completely different. But because I was doing so much, that's why I called it Navigate. It was kind of like a soundtrack to what I was doing. Mm. And I feel like I'm really happy with what it done. Like I'm really happy with what it represents what I was able to do with it. Like, I'm known as a grime MC. If you listen to that album, I'm singing, I'm rapping, I'm spitting bars. Like, there's, I I was able to have so much fun of it. And the only reason I was able to have fun of my music is because it wasn't my only source of income. Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, so there's less pressure on it. Yeah, I was able to yeah. just
1: have fun of it. But it's like a gift and a curse because I wasn't able to kind of do all the stuff I wanted to do in my album. But then I was able to pull out, any music without fearing a label telling me, yo, you owe us this XYZ. I licensed my album to a label, so I got paid to put it out. And then they kind of make their money off it for XYZ amount of years. And then I get, the, I get my masters back. So mm-hmm. yeah, Navigate was a weird one. Navigate was weird. Navigate is never how I thought my first album would ever turn out. But I listened to it and it's just like a soundtrack of my life and it's beautiful. So I feel like the next piece of music i give them will be very like... Very different to Navigate. I feel like Navigate is my last time I make music as like a big zoo, just like feeling. Mm -hmm. My next music will be a bit more calculated, a bit more like, Not, I'm not trying to make music just for money, but you have to make decisions with music where you're like, are we doing this for the art or are we doing this for the music? Because sometimes people like, you know when a song is a hit, I feel like people discredit the art of it and there's art in making a hit. 100%.
0: 100%. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean in the books world. Okay, yeah. It's like if a yeah, book it's is commercially same. successful, uh-huh. then it's somehow not literary.
1: Nah, it's, a, yeah, it's the same yeah. kind of measure. And I feel like I've done so much where I've put my heart into stuff. I've tried to be real. I've tried to flex my pen. I've tried to do everything I can do to push myself lyrically and what I'm promoting. And I've never just made a song to go... You know what? I love singing. Why don't I just do like a singing song? Or I love this. Why don't I just do that? Everything I've done has had so much meaning. And I'm proud of that. And I feel like now I've done that, now I can go do some other things with music. Like like, do a little ballad.
0: You're like Picasso. You've done the basics. (laughs) That's
1: a great, that's a great... (laughs) Because he a great learned the basics
0: before we did all the Cubist stuff. Yeah, that's what I'm um, saying.
1: How old are you? I'm 27.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I feel like 27 is meant to be an age of like shifting, yes. Saturn returns, all of that sort of yep. stuff. And it's like the first phase of your life. To me, it feels delightfully responsive and reactive to opportunities that have manifested themselves mm-hmm. for you because mm-hmm. of your talent. And maybe the next phase of your life is more planned,
1: more strategic. More, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That is, no one's ever broken it down like that. But that's exactly what it is.
0: Excellent. Well, I can't, exactly. I'm excited for the next phase. Thank you. Let's get
1: onto your failures. So yes.
0: the, <laughs> These are all very funny failures. Yeah,
1: because it's not, for me, thinking of faith, I'm so positive. Yeah. If something goes wrong, I'm like, no, 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 it's, it was supposed to happen like that. I hate putting negative thoughts in the air. Yes. I hate it. When my friends do it, it pisses me off. I look at them like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Don't get me wrong. I have my depressed moments where I sit in my house and I let things get to me. I get on my phone. I look at the world. I get really upset. But nine times out of 10, anything happens, I don't look at it like a failure. So when, mm-hmm. I, got, when I got told about we're doing this and they were like, you need to think of some failures. I was like, nah.
0: But you know, that's the whole premise of this podcast is that actually failure means you're learning of course So actually it's a way the tagline is like how to fail actually means learning how to yeah. succeed better I feel like sometimes so we're on we, the same page i feel like sometimes
1: like i suppress my failures and act like it wasn't ever a failure i was always meant to be yeah i'm so, like that too so when i'm like what was a failure it's like well nothing was yeah do you know what i mean yeah. but then when i sit down and when you sit down and you have to get into it and it's kind of it's like a dark space Thinking of what your failures are.
0: Well, I'm grateful for my failures because they've got me here. Yeah. Yeah. So I got divorced and Mm -hmm. I'm so, I mean, thank goodness, quite frankly. But at the time it did feel like a failure. And also socially there's a concept that it's a failure, even Mm -hmm. though it isn't. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, anyway, I'm excited to hear about yours. Yeah. And I'm excited that you really, it clearly like really thought about it. Oh, one million percent. So we're not going to go to a dark space. Don't worry. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not, it's,
1: it's, it's not dark. It's just sometimes it's like, you have to put yourself in that mindset of when did, when did I feel, when did I feel that failure? Yeah. Because sometimes you, you, you bury them, isn't it? Yeah. You bury them with what you, your form of what acceptance is. I feel like I accept all my failures. I probably don't, but I feel like I try to.
0: Well, yeah. it's really interesting speaking about your mum. I mean, she had to accept stuff yeah. that was completely beyond her control. Oh, God, yeah. She had to leave her home, her family, her mm-hmm. country, because of something that was totally, that wasn't her fault.
1: Yeah, and
0: she had to survive and get on with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that mindset has probably informed how you feel about... Oh,
1: for sure. Because if that never happened, I would have never been here. Yeah. And I would have never done what I've done for my family, for my people. So... So that war had to happen for her to have a better life.
0: Yeah.
1: But it's, yeah, if the war never happened, I'd just be some young, young Jean and living my best life. So, (laughs) yeah, it's, 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 but yeah, like, like you said, yeah.
0: (laughs) But your first failure is about you and the school football team. Yes. Tell us about this.
1: We love football. We loved it. Like football was everything to us. I've grown up, I grew up playing football every day, every weekend Mm -hmm. without fail. Yeah. Very lucky to have had it a Recreational Ground in Maiderville. It was opened by the government and the lottery. And it was when, back in the day, you could go to sports centres and you could play for free. Now everything's privatised, it's run by this everyday something or this fitness, that or da 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 and you have to pay a membership. When I was young, you could be 10 years old, you could go to a football cage and you could play football and you don't have to pay. That was what we used to do. We loved it. Like, we'll play football so much that we'll have to bring change of clothes for when we'll play football at lunchtime, when we go into lesson, that's how much we loved it. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, when we would play other schools, it just never clicked. Never. Mm -hmm. And I was our school goalkeeper. So I spent many, many hours standing on a random field in Regents Park, freezing, Mm -hmm. being destroyed
0: Mm -hmm.
1: every week. Mm -hmm. Every other week, I would go home. I'd pull my hamstring. I'd pull my quad. I'd put my life into it. Covered in mud. And we just never won. Never. Year seven, what's going on? Year eight, no. Year nine, no. Year 10, it just never... And what was funny is that other schools, because we play football in the area, would see them like on normal days when we're out of school and they'll know us. And I know a lot of people from my area that didn't go to my school. We play football with them normally and we'll beat them. Yeah. But for some reason, when we came together as a unit... It just never clicked. And I blame Mr. Reed, our coach. He lives in Kenya now and he's a great man. I still stay in contact with him. But I blame Mr. Reed. And then when we got to year 10, I got a mad injury. I dislocated my hip and cracked my hip bone.
0: Ow. It
1: wasn't good. It was because of football.
0: Was it on the pitch that yeah, it happened? Yeah, but it
1: wasn't in a football game. It was when I was playing like on Saturday with some friends. So I said, I'll become manager. My first match we won And I thought, yes, I'm here to... It's a revolutionary year. I'm going to be the one that does it. Then our next game, we lost like 8-0. And all the lads lost faith in me. And it was just... That was like... I was really young. I didn't know what I wanted, but I just... I didn't know what I wanted to do in life, but I was really good at getting people together and galvanizing people and kind of like leading people. That's what I do in my life now. Out of all my friends, out of all my people, they all know when it comes to stuff, I'm the one that says, yo, let's do this. Or we should go here. Or why don't we do... Like, I'm, like if we're going to order food, I'll be like, let's order food. We should eat from here. Shall I order it?
0: Oh my gosh, you're my dream.
1: So when I did it, I thought, yeah, this is the moment. But then I failed. I lost. I mean, and I will never quite understand why, but... That was my first real understanding of like, you can have all the intention, you can have everything, but sometimes it just doesn't work.
0: Yes. And did you apply that to other aspects of your life then when you grew up, like, for instance, could you apply it to relationships? Like sometimes you mm. can try your hardest and it's just oh, the yeah. vibe isn't there.
1: One million percent. That's what happened with me and my ex. I was with my for a long time with each other for six years and um, from when I was like 18. On and off, like things happened. But when we come towards the end of our relationship, she was complaining about me not seeing that enough. So I was like, cool, I'm going to make an effort to see you all the time. And I did it. And then it wasn't good enough. So I was like to her, mm-hmm. maybe this just isn't working. And then when we broke up, we was both really happy because we were like, yeah, it wasn't working. So sometimes it's like, you have to understand when, like, when where your energy is needed. Yes. And I feel like what, what happened when I was we was young is that our energy was in the wrong places. We loved football so much. We loved how we played. We loved everything. But we never channeled it into the right things that we needed to work on instead of spending time in our training or spending time all we wanted to do is play so all we do is just play against each other all day but how are you going to grow as a team if you don't practice drills or know each other's best foot forward all you want to do is be competitive and, and I feel like sometimes that's how it is with relationships sometimes as men like we get into this state where we're like everything I'm doing is right no everything I'm doing is correct I'm so right in everything i do but it's like no sometimes if you don't have a conversation listen to your partner sometimes you might be doing everything you think that is right but it's all the wrong things Mm. and it's not because what you're doing is negative because i feel like sometimes that's what we do we go well if what i was doing was positive but it's not making you happy then i can never make you happy yes that's wrong that's obviously you have to have a conversation and we never had that convo with our school football team okay that's i think that's the best way for me to loop it back and are ready to take on the never-ending world of outrageous online opinions
0: each week we bring you the most ridiculous videos hot takes and hell-bent news we come across on the internet
1: so come laugh with us as we dismantle outdated ideologies and tear apart the most confident idiots on the internet on our podcast outspoken
0: you can follow and listen for free on apple podcasts spotify youtube or wherever you are listening right now And then when you left school, was that the end of the football team?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. We still played football as lads. Yeah. I still kept it going. So out of my friendship group, like I said, I would plan football every week. Yo, let's go. Man them. Me and my friend Heidel that does big eats as well. Yeah. He was like my second coach. We, me, I would be like head and he's like the assistant. And we'll rally up the troops and we'll play. Every Thursday we used to play. We used to play every Sunday. Who's on it? And then now we're a bit older, we've kind of slowed down. But Sunday, our first session is back in so
0: So I once interviewed Malcolm Gladwell for this podcast and he talked about his failure at running competitively. Because he used to be a super gifted runner at school. And then at one point he realised he was never going to make it and he just gave up. Mm. And then in his middle age, he started jogging again. But he was only ever mediocre. And he said, but my challenge was to find joy in the mediocrity, to find joy in just doing the thing that you enjoy rather than doing it competitively to a certain level. 100%. And I'm sure you're brilliant
1: at football. (laughs) But it sounds
0: to me like maybe that's where you found your joy.
1: Yeah, 100%. Like One thing about me is... I'm not the best baller in the world, but I've got a good left foot and I've always had a good left foot. So, and I've got good good footballing brain. And where football's taken me is crazy. Like I've done soccer aid. I got to play in a sold out Etihad in front of thousands of people, played with Roberto Carlos, Paul Scholes, Wayne Rooney, like stuff that I never thought I'd ever do. I played in Old Trafford, I played at Anfield, I played at Wembley. There's things that people wish they could have done within football I've been able to do. And it's like, I feel like we're in a time where your hobbies can really become your work. Yeah. And I've been able to really capitalize off that. But like football is always a thing. Even if I don't get paid a penny, like you said, it's just what I find fun. So Sunday I could go do X, Y, Z, but I've talked off and said, no, two o'clock, let's go play some football.
0: Just because it's coming up, because we were talking about relationships and I realized that we've spoken a lot about your mum. Yeah. Can I ask you about your dad? Yeah, yeah, of course. So what's your relationship with your dad like?
1: It's a bit weird. When I was younger, obviously he wasn't in my life, so I didn't really talk to him a lot. You would check in once in a while. Him and my mom are very cordial. They would love each other forever. So like mm. they will have ups and downs. I never really got involved. So up until I was about like 18, 19, I had no real relationship with my dad. I've met him probably like two, three times when I've gone back home. I went back to Sierra Leone twice when I was younger. So apart from that, I had no real connection with him. But then by, by the time I got to like 18, 19, I said, you know what, let me start reaching out to him. I'll speak to him on my WhatsApp and stuff. So by the time I was like mid twenties, me and him would talk all the time. And now, like, I speak to my dad every day on, like, WhatsApp. I check in. How's the family? How's things going? And, like, my dad has other kids. So, obviously, my brothers and sisters, I got a lot of love for them. And now, because I'm, like, I do what I do, he loves it. Because he's back, he's back home and, like, when it was a Champions League final, I did a video with Peter Crouch about it being in France, eating croissants and stuff. And... My dad was watching the final at home and the VT that me and Peter Crouch did came up and my dad seen me do a hell of things. He's, he's very proud of me. But I remember him being like, I'm watching African football channel. Yeah. And my son is there. So the whole of Africa that's watching the Champions League final is seeing my son. That's crazy. Yeah. He never thought that. He never thought that my mom would leave the country and we'll go and do that. So for my dad, it's like, he's very like proud of me and he's kind of like, my dad is my connection to where I'm from. Even though my dad's not with me and my dad didn't grow up with me, my dad is me in it, and mm. he's over there and he is a big part of who I am, where I'm from. So even though he didn't help me a lot growing up, wasn't there for me, I don't hold it against him. Do you know what I'm saying? Because mm. mm. that ain't going to get me nowhere. So don't get me wrong, there's definitely times where I'm definitely upset about what's happened and I wish it was different, but it made me who I am, made my mom who she is. And it gives me and my dad all this scope to like, build a different type of relationship. And I've spoken to friends before who like cut off family members and I've told them about my relationship with my dad. And some of them has inspired them because they're like, right, he really did your mum dirty. Like he didn't, he effed up. Like you you have all the right to say, nah, I'm not going to give you anything. But what do you gain from that? And if it happens to my dad, I'll be like, I missed out on that whole opportunity of being able to develop a relationship with him. And Hmm. yeah, I think... I think it's really tough because I've got a lot of friends who have relationships with their dad that are really bad and they've got siblings and fa- members of, of family family like that they're not close to because of one disconnection. People say family's not as important as you make it out to be because at the end of the day, sometimes your friends do more for you than your family. But I'm a big believer in, like, like if, we, if we share blood and, like, we're from the same place, I should have your back in it. Mm. You know what I'm
0: saying? Do you prefer Lebanese or Sierra Leoneese food?
1: Okay, so Sierra Leonean. So, sorry. It's fine, all right. Sierra Leonean food is definitely my favorite, but Lebanese food is more everyday, isn't it?
0: I, yeah, I mean, I love a Lebanese, like an aubergine stew. Oh, yeah. Oh.
1: Le- Lebanon is great food.
0: Okay, thank you so That's much fine. for that. Your second failure is to do with your song, Manual.
1: Yes, to Manual. Yeah. Well, so I wrote this song. It's called we- Manual. It was on my first. EP that I put out electronically. So I had my first EP, which was Big Who, which I put out on like SoundCloud and stuff. My first EP I put on iTunes was a thing called Big Zoo EP. So I'm not very creative with the names. I went from Big Who <laughs> to Big Zoo. Um, no, so we just
0: big th- have Big Poo, the now, next it's, Big Poo the final <laughs> one.
1: Put out Big Zoo. And when I was putting it out, I wrote this song called Manual. And the course is very simple. is It goes, Manual, control this thing like manual. I'm in the top gear, that's manual. Then my beginner got a draw for the manual, Yeah. So I just said different things of what Emmanuel is, literally. I thought it was so lyrical. And I never knew what this song was going to do. So when I wrote it, I said, I need a singer. I want someone to sing that. I can sing, but like the high is a bit high. I would rather have someone who's got a cleaner voice sing it. So I hit up Deneo, who's a legend. He made a song called Party Hard, which is like one of the greatest fun songs of all time. Daneo's massive. He's been doing it for years. But me and him was cool. Like, I met him a couple of times. He saw I was doing the music. He showed me love. So I said, yo, the what are you saying? I got this song called Manual. Can I get a chorus? Showed it to him. And he was like, ah, he's like, brother, you're just not there right now. You're not, it was 2017. And he's like, you're just not big enough right now. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> like, in my mind, I was like, I've got to be cool because I don't want to seem sour. But like in my mind, I was like, bro, like what me and my friends are doing right now is legendary. Like Mm. we are changing the game. We was new Grime MCs. We had a new flavor. We was doing massive shows with people across the UK, across the world. We was the new wave. So So I was really surprised when he didn't do it. And then he ended up making a song with an artist that was in a similar kind of place to me. I was kind of like, you know what? You'll make a song with him. You won't make a song with me. In the future... We'll see where he is and we'll see where I am. And I, I'm never a sour person, but that moment there, I was like, I just felt in music, it's always, it's very important for the older artists to support the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Because when the older artists don't have their time anymore, they can rely on the younger generation to give them that do But then what they give the young younger generation is kind of like a stamp. It's like a cosign. Mm. You always see it in music. Every form of music, whatever genre it is, older artists always put on for the younger artists. And I felt like growing up in my scene... I never really got that a lot. When I got older, yeah, people like JME, they tapped in, P Money, XYZ, a lot of artists that have been doing grind for a lot of years. But when I was on the come up, I never ever had that like, you know what, you're sick, come, let me help you. I never had that. But then what happened with Manual was so beautiful. I performed it at my first headline show and I was like, wow, it wasn't a single, it was just a song on the EP. It's like, yo, this is, they like it. Like it has an energy, it's like a mosh song. It starts, has a mad intro, it builds up, and then a drop comes in, boom, and I start going crazy. And then it comes down, the chorus is a sing-along, all they have to say is manual. So it had all the keys to be like a very successful song for live performance. 2022 now, I perform manual across the world, America, Africa, Australia, like 90% of Europe. Like I've performed it across the world. And every time I perform it, it's so mad, mad mosh pit. we going crazy. People that don't want a mosh pit will mosh pit to manual because I've done it so many times that I know when I press play, I go, yo, can I get a big fucking mosh pit in the middle of the room, please? No, no, no. We can't start the song until the mosh pit start. So once the mosh pit goes, then the song starts. People have never heard this song before and they'll mosh pit to it. And it's beautiful because I'm like, I own all the credit. Mm. No Deneo. <laughs> have
0: you spoken to him since?
1: No. Okay. <laughs> I ain't spoken to him. I ain't seen him in a long time. I wish him the best. Yeah. But I'm so happy he hasn't got that song because then he would have got all the clout. And yeah. when the chorus came in, I would have to say, big up Deneo. Instead, you got me.
0: <laughs> what did that teach you about rejection?
1: First, it was like, you won't make a song of me, but you make a song of them. I was just like, it made me go on my own more. Yeah. I made me focus on my choruses more as well. More because so I said, you know what? He's not going to sing it. How am I going to sing manual? So I'm really proud of how manual sounds. If I play it for you now, the chorus is, is so, it's mixed so well. It sounds so clean. It sounds beautiful, but I'm a rapper. Like, I'm not supposed to be able to sing like that.
0: So you know what I mean? Yeah. So some people are flattened by rejection and yeah. some people are flattened by criticism and yeah. they take it really personally and they think, Oh, well, I must be rubbish, so I'm not gonna do that anymore. Yeah. It sounds like you're the opposite, that it, you yeah. use it as fuel.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, I've got a lyric that says, Your bad vibes fuel the fire, make it burn. Like, love it. it just, it's just, that's what it is. That's what, if I let me not get in the feature from him, I really, don't get me wrong, at first I was like, Rah, is the song not good enough? Yeah. Then I said, Nah, let me go to the studio. Did it. And I, it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life was do manual on my own, get rejected by Dineo and be told, no, I'm not going to give you that chorus and then go on to performing it across the world. It's, it's one of the best feelings ever, because for me, it was like, I could have really been like, no, nah, the song's shit. I shouldn't have put it out. I and mean, imagine what that would have done. Because mm. that song is from 2017 and I'm still able to perform it now. And it sounds fresh.
0: Do you get abuse and or criticism mm. online for being on TV?
1: Not really, no. I mean, obviously people have, there's underlying tones in how people speak to me. There's definitely, it definitely is more from the creative side rather than fans. Rather than fans saying, why does you not make music anymore? My fans are very proud of what I've done. I've got fans that have been listening to my music since 2015 who were like, can't believe you're on telly. Then I've got people who are like, oh, we wish you would do more music. Mm. But the conversation is never, why are you on telly? Why are you not making music? I think that's just a weird thing to say. But creatively, that's the conversation I get all the time. I'll meet like creative people and they're like to me, like friends or not friends, but people that I have I know through the industry who have seen me do music for years. They're like, yo, when are you going to make music again? Well, I can make music whenever I want. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like if I've gone and made a TV show that's free series... And gone and done, X, Y, Z, one all these accolades, boom, boom, boom. Surely you should know that right now I'm, what I'm doing is all right. Yeah. So <laughs> you telling me why you're not doing music, it's a very loaded, like, comment. It comes from, like, but feel like there is an underlying tone that if you, you're such this creative musician, mm-hmm. who, and I stand for a lot as well, I stand for, like social change and stand for young people to like transition into the very like mainstream television media, you kind of lose your essence. And that doesn't come from the fans because the fans are not that deep. They don't really care. Don't get me wrong. There might be someone in their house who's like, no, you should rap more. But it's more the creative people who always say to me, it's all about music. What are you going to do with your music? Oh, so what? Is it hard for you to make music? Is it hard for you to transition? Boom, boom, boom. And I'm always like to them, you should know if you look at America, most musicians transition into doing other forms of entertainment, whether it's Elvis Presley <laughs> or if it's Justin Timberlake. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who it is. Like Beyonce, at the height of her career, was acting. Yeah. She's not the greatest actor in the world as well. She's kind of dead as an actor. Sorry, Beyonce. Love you.
0: I can't believe you just
1: criticized Beyonce. is <laughs> a dead a- a- actor. Don't, she is not a good actor. Don't,
0: don't say that. I'm
1: sorry. She's <laughs> a great, great singer. But that's what I'm saying. It, it comes from, I will always respect what she did. Like, Dream Girl is a sick film. All, them, yeah. all the kind of things. Like, but like even like, that's why I love Jamie Foxx so much because people always tell me he's one of your biggest role models. I always say Jamie Foxx because he's not the biggest actor in the world. He's not the biggest musician in the world. But he has... Great things that he's done. He's killed it. Mm. Now, when you say who's your favorite artist of all time, you might not say Jamie Foxx. When you say he's your favorite actor of all time, you probably won't say Jamie Foxx, But I love Ray, and oh, I love such
0: a good movie. I
1: love Overnight Celebrity. Great song.
0: Yeah, I think that's so interesting. <laughs> and not that I want to relate everything back to myself. No, well, of course yeah, I really That's, that's, that's relate, how you internalize. Yeah, I really relate in the sense that I. I'm an author and I write books and I did that before the podcast. And then I started the podcast as like a passion project and it's become ironically the most successful thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And it's brought me to this whole new realm of audience and listenership. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful for it. And there are people in the books world Mm. who are quite dismissive of it or who feel that it takes away from my craft as a writer and it's so irritating. And I think it's because in this country, we want to categorize people.
1: One million percent. We,
0: we are terrible, particularly if you're not a white man, <laughs> that you're not allowed to do multiple things. Yeah. You have to sit in one box.
1: Yeah, one million percent. It's, it's as it's been many, many years. America, they're used to it. Yeah. La- Lady Gaga could go make a massive film and get nominated for an Oscar. It's completely fine. Like... Over here we don't have that transition. I feel like entertainment is slowly getting there, but in America, it is paramount how much musicians like Drake was a was an actor before he made music in a little show called Degrassi, which is like super random, but it's amazing to see like people do different things like and have different passion projects as well, like there's so many artists in the UK now who express w- what they love through different things. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. But why do you think we're worse in this country at embracing
1: that? Because we're very like, I'll use football pundits as an example. Most pundits, ex-players. Mm. Are ex-players the best journalists, presenters? No, because it's not a job. But the reason why they're on telly is because I'll listen to him. Yeah, He played football for 20 years. Yeah, He might not be able to articulate himself, <laughs> say the point properly. He might not be good on camera. He might not actually be good at his job. But because he's great at football, I listen to his opinion,
0: and I know him. I yes. know the look of him. He yes. looks familiar. Yeah,
1: compared to someone who might be incredible at presenting, have the most knowledge of football in the universe, just never played football, mm. you wouldn't listen to them because he didn't play football. And that's how I see it. It's it's really it's like what I love now is you have got pundits coming through that are different that are not the best footballers of all time. We got Michael Richards. You're my brother. I love you. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's not a football legend. Not in terms of, like, yeah. scope, in terms of... In football, don't get me wrong, he's done incredible things. Like, I'm not discrediting Mike Bridges at all. Mm. But Micah is not Roy Keane. But the reason why him and Roy Keane are so well on camera is because has a bit more personality, a bit more... He's a bit more, like, vibrant. Mm. So now we're a bit more accepting of people that are like, you know what, Michael, you're good at your job. You could be a pundit. You might not have won 15 Champions Leagues and won every single trophy like Roy Keane, but we love to see you on telly and you're different. Yeah. And that's what I feel like England is is slowly transitioning now. We've always been very used to, like, if you're good at that, that's what you do. But now it's like, you, you see, look at... Like, or
0: if you look like that, that's what you do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, obviously, yeah. Representation in terms of aspect is very important in terms of us, That's what we're changing. We've seen it happen in telly. The point I was going to give is that, like, you see like Flintoff, Mr. Freddie Flintoff, yeah. going and doing things like Top Gear and that. Like that, back in the day, that was a bit random. Now it's like, that's normal now. like You see like Jamie Redknapp doing Your League of Their Own and he's hilarious. Jamie's so funny. Him and Harry have their own little spin-off show where it's about a father and dad relationship. So I love to see people get into different things and have different fun because it works both ways because people want to enjoy different parts of their life, but because we're so used to putting them in a box, Mm. they don't get to. Like if a footballer does some other stuff, we'll be like, no, no, you should focus on football. But then it's like, you're a human being. So you're talking about your, your world. It's like, I feel like with art, it's a bit more critical. Because people will be like, what you produce is not good anymore because you do X, Y, Z. Yeah, it's a bit more pretentious. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also a pro footballer though. Yeah, I, have, just I haven't told you that. Deep but. down. <laughs> deep down. But now I feel like we're getting more, like now people are like used to it. I get on telly and it's like, I'm a chef, but I might make some music or I might go present some shit.
0: Mm. well talking of football that brings us on to your third and final failure oh yeah
1: this is a deeper one
0: <laughs> okay I could yeah explain it to me it's to do with a video at yes. the end of a Liverpool match so
1: Liverpool played Man City last year okay. very important game yeah. the away end in Man City is very small for yeah. the Liverpool fans so not a lot of Liverpool fans get the pleasure of watching them play in the stadium I got a ticket from Nike because one of my friends work at, works at Nike got my ticket went to the game I put up a video, and it was 2-2, at the end of the game, we was huddled into our away end, we couldn't leave because they had to mm-hmm. wait for the, the home end to leave. I did a video, part of. I said, yo, man's here, Liverpool, man's with a Liverpool man, then, real Liverpool gang shit. I said gang shit because that slang means like, my people, mm-hmm. our gang. But they thought, people thought I meant gang shit as in shoot you with a gun and sell you some narcotics, gang shit. <laughs> So when I put out the video... Do you mean you put it out on Instagram? I put it it on Twitter. And what happened was, is that a couple of narrators were created. The first one was, how comes I get a ticket when Mm -hmm. diehard Liverpool fans who've been going all season can't get a ticket? Why am I saying gang shit? Because we're not a gang. Mm -hmm. Please leave your little black people gang stuff in London. We're from Liverpool. We don't represent that, which is what I was being told. And the other thing was a lot of people can't get tickets as well as I said there's a thing called touts they'll get a ticket that's worth 70 quid and say well if you want to go to that Liverpool Man City game you've got to pay a grand so people are saying these celebrities get money and then they raise the ticket price so again, all these things online I'm like I was like what the, bro I just went to a Liverpool game like why are you not going crazy started going files retweets people saying disgusting things about me saying this, this, a, a lot of people attacking my character because they're upset at these three things that I've explained. How did I combat it? I come out and said, "Listen, you don't need to cast my character, but if you're going to talk about me because of my race and give me these racial connotations, like saying gang shit needs to stay in London, these southerners with their little, with their little, all this, all this stupid north south bullshit, which made no sense to me." I basically said, "If you're upset that I'm in the, watching Liverpool game because I'm a young black man from South London, you're a fool. I basically just called them all out. Your players are from Africa. Your board is from America. The club is not Liverpool. Liverpool is international. If Liverpool was only to be represented by Liverpool, then all the players should be from Liverpool. Salah shouldn't play there because he's from Egypt. Mane shouldn't play there because he's from Senegal. Firmino shouldn't be there because he's from Brazil. And that was was what my main anger was. It got a bit worse now. I've gone to another game. People were complaining, why did I get tickets? I thought, you know what? I'm going to give away some tickets for free. So, FA Cup semi final, I've done a tweet. I said, I'm giving away two tickets for the Liverpool game for the FA Cup semi final. The only condition is you can't be from Liverpool and you can't have gone to a game before. They went absolutely crazy.
0: Oh, because you said you can't be from Liverpool. I said, you can't be from Liverpool and you can't
1: go to a game. So, you've be your first game. Yeah. And it destroyed them. They went absolutely mental. They're like, look what you're doing. You're ruining it more because it kind of already started. So I was like, you know what, let me double down on this, which people aren't happy that I did, but I did it on purpose because my thing is football is not supposed to be a thing where well, I was getting a lot of tweets. These are the main tweets that I was getting. I've been going to the Liverpool games since I was X, Y, Z. It's not fair that you get to go to this game. It's not fair that you get to go to Liverpool city. It's not fair that you go to get to go to the FA cup final. I said, well, it's not fair that people never get to experience that because mm. you lot buy all the tickets and, you don't want to welcome anyone new into your atmosphere. So what I'm going to do is counteract it and give away my two tickets to someone that's never been to a game before. When I did it, sent him into meltdown, disarray. I said, you know what, I'm going to do it again. FA Cup final comes around, I tweet. I said, retweet this tweet. If you want to win a ticket to the Liverpool final, don't get me wrong, I'm definitely getting PR from it. It's boosting my name. I'm not doing it because of that. I'm doing it because I'm pissed off at people being racist to me online. Yes. And I want to counteract them by pissing them off a bit more. It's not the best way to react to things, but sometimes you have no way to react. Gave the ticket to a kid that was, that was disabled. We've got a lot of retweets. A lot of people said you should give it to him. If you're going to do all this shit, even fans that were against me were like, might as well give it to him. Gave him the ticket. And someone tweeted saying, isn't it funny that the person that wins the ticket is brown and Muslim? The kid was disabled. And that's what you're going to tweet. And it just, it summed up the overall energy around the whole situation. It was, it was a very sour. It was one of the worst experiences I had. It made it's me fall horrible. out of love with football a lot. But what basically the overall conversation was, is that I come from a single-parent background. The first time I ever went to a Liverpool game, was I was 22. It's because I could afford it. So unfortunately, not all of us have a dad that are going to pay for us to go to a Liverpool game when we're young. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are like, why do you support Liverpool? Unfortunately... I didn't choose the team I support when I was young. My dad supported Liverpool because when he was in Africa, they were the first coloured team with a red, they were red and they liked red Mm. and they won a lot. So I was breaking down a lot of conversation and it basically led to the inclusion and diversity head of Liverpool reaching out to me, saying, we've seen your tweets. We've seen what's going on. How do we counteract this? I told him what was going on. I told him what I was receiving. He said... Can we please get tweets of people being racist to you? I said, no. I'm not going to screen-munch them and send them to you. Use your brain. Go look at what's going on. Develop a conversation. Now I'm working with the club on getting more tickets for people from normal backgrounds that have no access to football clubs. And whether it's getting them to matches or just getting them to do stadium tours or getting them to come to away days or doing more like inclusivity with the club... That's what I'm working on now. So, from all of the backlash, it's led to something good.
0: Amazing. Yeah,
1: it's a lot. It's a long story Uh, and it's kind of long to get through.
0: I also didn't know that it was going to go there. And and it's actually a really profound failure. And it's not yours, it's a failure of football fans and a failure of society, Mm -hmm. really. And football has a racism problem. Of course. But do you think now we're in an age where it's fan-generated? Like, it's not necessarily within the game itself. It's about the atmosphere No, there's two sides to
1: it. So there is definitely football. There's institutional racism within football, 100%, because you have 20 managers in the Prem. One is black. So Mm -hmm. that's instantly from the top down. Most of the directors, most of the CEOs of football clubs are not diverse in any way in terms of gender, in in terms of race, in terms of thought pattern. But the main thing that was... What pissed off a lot of Liverpool fans is I did a tweet calling them racist. When I said the people that are treating me badly are racist, they said, that's not racism. How dare you call us racist? I can get up on my phone, thousands of tweets, because it was a bad time for me. Yeah. I read I read most of the shit. People talking... All the debates, all the back and forth. My manager was begging me to get off my phone, but I couldn't, because I was so invested. I, just want, I was like, why are you guys attacking me? I, I love you lot. This, like... To give you more backstory, a couple of years ago, I went viral over a Liverpool rap. I did a rap about how our season was going. Then I got to meet Jurgen Klopp, meet Henderson, interviewed the team. After that, I'm like, one of my freestyles played on Match of the Day. I became like a massive Liverpool fan. So a lot of people resonated with me in the mm-hmm. club. So when this negative stuff started happening, when I called it racism, they were like, how dare you? We love you. We did it. But you getting tickets is not fair. Then you have obviously all the people that are still being racist X Y Z, and it became such a thing where it was like it was people telling me what racism is, mm. and it's old white men telling me what racism is, and the amount of people what was hilarious is that it started debates, so you have people replying to them telling them why they are racist and why they da da da, and it just became I started getting threats, don't come to Liverpool games, boom boom boom, and I swear to you towards the end of the season I went to every match, and every time in real life all I would get was groups of men staring at me. Oh, my But goodness. it wasn't intimidating. Because while that would happen, little kids, people come up to me, take a picture, love. So real life, there was love. Online, there was hate. And I really learned that you have to block it out. It's not real. I stood for something. Got a lot of abuse it's ended up to turn out to a beautiful relationship with me and the club.
0: Oh, I'm you know? so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. And do you have systems in place now for dealing with Twitter so that you protect well, yourself I've and been your mental health?
1: I've been asked to not do anything like I did with... So yeah. the one thing, one thing I have traded now to work with the club and to do stuff for, to go forward is I've said, I won't do what I did again. Okay. Because I was riling them up. I, kn- I knew what I was doing. I was riling them up, saying i am giving away tickets but you can't be from Liverpool. As a Liverpool fan who's having to spend a grand to go to the final in the cost of living crisis it is upsetting, mm-hmm. but sorry that I'm making a chance for someone who's never gone to a football match to go to a game. I don't see the harm in that. I don't see the harm in me giving it to someone who's never been to a game compared to me giving it to someone who went to 50 games a season. You went to 50 games. Congrats. Yes, you didn't go to the final game of the season. That's sad. But people are telling me how much they spend on travel, how much they spend to go to games. So that gives you the right that no one else should be able to go to that match apart from you. Then football should only be watched by a couple of people
0: then. It feels like the thread throughout this interview is diversity of opportunity and equality of access. Mm-hmm. Like everything you do feels as though it's guided by that. Yes. Are you still on Twitter? <laughs> you know, Twitter's basically on the way out anyway. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I
1: love Twitter, but... You're an incredible person. What you just said there is the root of me. I'm battling that. Mm-hmm. And I never thought i will battle it in football because I'm not a footballer. I'm just a fan. Yeah. But my presence wasn't liked. What's the undertone? If I was Daniel Craig, it wouldn't have been an issue. But because I'm Big Zoo, who said gang shit, it was a massive issue. And they, no one wanted to accept that was the truth. No one. Mm-hmm. Not the people that work around me, not Liverpool. No one wanted to say, you're right. This is wrong. They're racist. No one wanted to say it. As soon as someone said that, I would have stopped all my shit. But because no one was trying to agree with me, I kept going. I kept going. I kept going. Liverpool asked me to send them receipts of the racism. Said, I'm not doing that. Use your brain. Think about it. Young black man doing a video. Get abuse. Where do you think the view comes from? It does not come from all this other stuff. It comes from what we think it comes from. But like I said, it's my battle. It's my battle with the BAFTAs. It's my battle with music. It's my battle with football. It's the battle that I will always have. And I used to think my battle was just for black people. My battle was not for black people. My battle was for working class people. And my battle is not, I'm not against people from the middle class. I'm not against people from who are, who are born rich because we need diversity of thinking. So I'll never create a space where we exclude people like that. But I feel like the focus... Needs to be more on giving work class people opportunities within the world. And that's what I want to be the beacon of, whether it's through music, entertainment, sports, or just life. Again, yeah, we got there in the end.
0: I mean, that is the perfect (laughs) place to end. But before we end, I want to say that your presence is so vital and your presence is so welcome. And I'm so grateful to your presence and your passion today because your story is big and successful, but your story Big Zoo is bigger than Big Zoo. (laughs) And I appreciate you for taking that on because I know it's a responsibility. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. Thank, Thank you for having